Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast of Grace Point Church in Atlantic, Iowa. My name is Don McLean. I'm the senior pastor here at Grace Point. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can check us out at gracepointatlantic.com. And in the meantime, grab your Bible and check out this week's sermon. The scripture reading today comes from 1 John chapter 2, verse 28, through 1 John 3, verse 10. And now, like children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born to him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to, make, to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has, sin, has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning, because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God, and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brothers. Good morning. There's a lot in that text. Oh my goodness. <laughs> well, we better get started. Yeah, would you pray with me, please? <clears throat> Gracious Father, thank you so much for bringing us here this morning. We are uh, we're pleased to be your children and uh, honored and uh, filled with joy over it. And we would ask that you would teach us now, like uh, the loving Father this text says you are. We pray that you would teach us, uh, help me to get out of the way in uh, whatever frailties and weaknesses I bring into the pulpit this morning. There are many. Would you please help people see past them and to hear what you want to say to us here in this passage some of it might be in the words I've prepared. Some of them might be words you bring to mind. Some of it might be something I'm not going to say, but they're just sitting there looking at your word. But whatever it is, uh, speak to every one of us. That's our, our prayer, Lord. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> well, back in December, uh, NASA, NASA launched, uh, teamed up with the European Space Agency to launch a telescope. They launched a telescope into space. It's called the James Webb Space Telescope. You might have heard about this. They actually launched it on Christmas Day, so it was kind of a fun piece of cheerful news uh, that they'd launched this thing. Now, it's going to take a little while before all the pieces are working, but once it's 
all working. They actually had to move it out of the Earth's orbit or just really far out there. Once it's up and running, uh, the Webb telescope is going to let human beings see farther than we've ever seen. It's going to let us see farther and more than we have ever seen. In fact, if it all works the way it's supposed to, and so far so good, uh, we might even be able, this is what the scientists say, uh, we might even be able to see the edge of the universe. That's what they hope to see with this thing, the edge of the universe, which means uh, over the next decade or so, because its life spans about 10 years, over the next decade or so, we are going to behold some spectacular pictures. I don't know how many people remember the pictures that would come back from the Hubble, all these galaxies and stuff they'd never seen before. This is going to be even better. They're going to be, we're going to be looking at some pretty awesome pictures over the next decade or so. In today's passage, though, John invites us to behold something even more awesome. It really is. It's even more awesome because he invites us in this text to behold God's love. Uh, that's what chapter 3 says. Go ahead and open your Bibles. First uh, John chapter 3, <clears throat> verse 1, uh, John says, See, see what kind of love the Father has given to us. Look at it, he says. That's what the word means. Look at it or see it. Now, that's a good translation. I usually work from the English Standard Version, the ESV, on Sunday mornings. It's a good translation, see what manner of love. Uh, but this happens to be one of those verses where I think the King James Version sings a little more clearly. Uh, because the King James Version says, behold. Some of us used to sing this as a chorus decades ago. Behold what manner of love the Father has given to us. That's how the KJV has it. And I actually prefer that translation in this case. Because... I mean, ESV is right, look, see, that's, that's what the word means. But I think what John's trying to do here is he's trying to get us to, to look, to gaze, to behold in awe. There's almost a sense of marvel, marvel at what we see here in the love of God, God for us. Just like that telescope's going to let us marvel at the, the deepest reaches of outer space. So uh, are we invited here to marvel, to behold God's love? And so that's what I'd like to do with you this morning. Like I said, there's a lot in this text, and we have to be selective with a text like this, and I don't want to, you know, we could spend a year in 1 John, but then there's other books we want to study too. So, so we're going to look at all of those verses, but we're going to be selective, and what I want to do is I want to focus in on how these verses specifically help us understand God's love. What, what is there here to behold? And there are actually three expressions, three expressions of God's love in the verses we're going to look at this morning. And so I want to show you those. And, and as we go through them, I, I want to make a connection. I want to go back to something we talked about in the first sermon in this, uh, in this series, back in, I, don't know, I guess it was the second week of January. I want to show the, the connection between God's love and God's joy. Right? God's love and God's joy. If you guys could advance that slide for me, please. Here we go. Yeah, thank you. Um, our experience of God's love is directly connected to our appreciation our experience of God's joy is directly connected uh, to our appreciation for God's love. Uh, and I told you, I, I remember, it was, I think it was January 9th, uh, we, we talked about kind of the, the themes of this book, and I told you at that time that one of the big purposes of this letter is to increase our joy. He says that in verse 4 of chapter 1. We are writing these things so that your joy may be complete. And I, I don't want to drop that theme, because I think it's, it really, we see it here in today's text. Uh, we will experience God's joy as we grow in our appreciation for his love for us. As we behold his love, we will uh, walk in more and more joy. So let's look at these together, and I'll try to joy, uh, draw some joy connections as we go along. But let's behold God's love together 
uh, in these three manifestations, these three expressions that John walks us through. So the first one is the one that's right there in this verse, and it's that he makes us his own children. He makes us his own children. So how much does God love us? Well, he loves us so much he made us his own children. You see this in uh, verses 1 and 2. And so he says, See or behold uh, what kind of love the Father has given to us, uh, that we should be called uh, children of God. And so we are. And the reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. I'm going to stop there in the middle of verse 2 for now. So he says, Behold what manner of love that we are called. We should be called the children of God. And we've got to understand that word, because when John says we are called God's children, uh, he's, he's not using it in like the sense in which he calls us that, but it's not true. All right, so you know, maybe you know, you, uh, you're a sports fan, and you're like, my favorite team is the best team. Like, well, they, they finished with a losing record, right? They're, they're not actually the best team. But to you, they you know, call them the best team. Uh, and so sometimes we'll use that word that way with almost like a sense of fiction to it. But, but John's not saying that. Uh, when he says we've been called the children of God, uh, he is saying that uh, we've, we've been made such, or we've been uh, named or declared to be. And so sometimes we'll talk about the doctrine of adoption. God adopts us as his own children. He makes us his own children. So, so how do we know God loves us? Right? If we want to look at his, his love, where does John have us start in this text? Well, he says start with the fact that you are not slaves, you're not servants, you're not employees, you are his children. You're his sons and his daughters. Now, John has more to say, and, and it's almost as if, as I was looking at this this week, it's almost as if he anticipates some objections. Right? We'll have objections to this idea that we are God's children. You know, because some people accept it, right? Some people, they're, they're just like, yep, I'm God's child, and, and they just kind of, they're okay with that, uh, or they accept it. They don't have a hard time accepting it. Others of us, though, we, we struggle with it a little bit, right? We're like, ah, you know what? And maybe it's because of how their own parents raised them or whatever it is. But, but sometimes people struggle to actually believe. And I think that's why John's going to reassure us here. He actually reassures us two different ways. Uh, he says, yes, we are. So here's how he does it. He says, uh, God has loved us. He's called us his children. And then he says, and so we are. Do you see that there in that verse? And so we are. He didn't have to say that. Grammatically, it's, it's, it's not necessary. He did not need to make that statement. He's already made the statement. But I think what he's doing here is he's assuring us. We need the reassurance. He anticipates somebody saying, well, maybe you're a child of God, but I'm not. Now, I've, I've had too many struggles or I've committed too many sins. I've done too much that was bad. So you're a child of God, but I'm not. And, and John says, oh, yes, you are. Oh, yes, you are. You, we really, and so we are. We really are. God's children. So there's this sense of he's going to emphasize it. He's going to reassure us. And then I think he anticipates another objection there in verses 1 and 2. The next objection is that, well, if we're God's children, nobody else seems to agree. Right? The world sure doesn't agree, he says. So if the world doesn't agree, maybe it's not true. Right? Maybe we're just making stuff up in our heads. And he addresses that. He says, look, the, the world doesn't know us that way. The world doesn't know us. You know, the world thinks we're nuts. You know, we, we, the Bible tells us we're God's children. The world tells us we're nuts. You know, I think of uh, Richard Dawkins, a name some of you might remember. Uh, Dawkins, oh, probably 15 years ago or so, wrote a pretty famous book, a best-selling book called The God Delusion. Uh, he, he's uh, an, a public atheist, I guess you could call him that. He, he wrote this book called The God Delusion 
Uh, people who believe in God, they're not uh, God's children. They're deluded, right? They're just making stuff up in their heads. I think John saw that coming. John saw that coming. The, the world doesn't know us, he says. And the reason the world doesn't know us is that they don't know him. And so that's why they say the things they say about us, right? So he's, he's just comforting them. See how he's, he's reassuring them. He's comforting them and, and comforting us. Yeah, the world doesn't see what the Bible says about you, but that's because the world doesn't know God. They don't know him, and so they don't know us, John says there at the end of that verse. But it doesn't matter what they think. He just dismisses it at the beginning of verse 2. Uh, what the world says about God's children doesn't matter one bit. Right? It doesn't matter what you say about my kids or what I say about your kids. What matters is what you say about your kids. And, and that's what John says here. What the world says about God's children doesn't matter one bit. And so he repeats it in verse 2. Beloved. There's an echoing of that sense of being loved. Beloved. Uh, we are God's children now. Not off in the future, it's now. We are God's children now, and what we will be, uh, the world hasn't seen it yet. It hasn't yet appeared, but it's true. We are God's children. That's a source of joy. Don't take that for granted, because it's not true of every human being that, that lives. Sometimes people will talk that way, and they'll talk about the brotherhood uh, of all human beings. Um, and there's a sense in which God created all human beings, and so you could, you know, could kind of say all people are God's children in that sense, but not in the sense John's talking about here. You're only God's child if you have accepted Jesus Christ and you've become, uh, and, and he has adopted you therefore that way. And so this is a high honor. It's not just something to kind of be taken for granted. This is a high honor, which makes it a source of joy. No matter what others say about us, our Heavenly Father loves us so much that he made us his children. Uh, there's also a sense of contentment that comes with that, a sense of peace. Uh, it, it doesn't matter. Sometimes people get bogged down on this point. And, you know, we, sometimes folks have had a difficult time with their earthly parents, and that will taint our, our ability to experience God as our heavenly parent. But I think what John's pushing us on here is, he's, yes, the earthly parents are far from perfect. Even the good ones are, are far from perfect. So don't measure God by your earthly parents. Measure uh, your perfect heavenly father uh, by, by him. Your perfect heavenly father loves you perfectly. That's, that's what he tells us there. I wanted to read a, a quote, a couple of sentences from a, a book a lot of us read over the last six months or so. Uh, we gave away a book back in the fall. You might, maybe you grabbed a copy called Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland, And uh, he talked about this actually a lot. If, if you struggle with this issue, Ortland's book would be a good one. If you struggle to believe God loves you, that's kind of the point of his book. Uh, God really does love us. He's gentle and lowly toward us, hence the title of the book. And uh, just a couple of sentences here from one of the later chapters. Ortland writes, he's talking about God's love. He says, who do you think God is? Not in a challenging way, he's inviting us. Who do you think God is? Not just on paper, but in the kind of person you believe is hearing you when you pray. How does he feel about you? Ortland asks. And, and that's really, I think, what John is talking about here at the beginning of the chapter. Uh, he's talking about how God feels about us. We're going to get into that, that sense of, of being beloved and, and being made his children. Uh, Ortland goes on. He says, uh, God's saving of, his saving of us is not cool and calculating. It is rather a matter of yearning. Not yearning for the, hey, I like how he does this, not yearning for the Facebook you, all right, the one you project to everyone around you, but rather yearning for the real you, the you who you really are, close quote. And, and that's what this passage says here at the beginning of chapter 3. God really does love you. Not because of what you've done for him or what you've accomplished or any of that stuff the world measures by. He loves you uh, because he loves you and he's made you his children. 
So that's number one. He makes us his own children. Behold uh, that manner of love in which the Father has loved us. He's made us his children. The second expression, number two, of God's love uh, is that he frees us from our own sin. So he makes us his own children. He frees us from our own sin. And you heard the passage before. This is really the folk. This is the majority. The majority of the verses in this passage this morning are dealing with this issue of sin. And so I'm going to spend more time on the second point here than I will on the other two. And so, uh, and and the second one flows logically out of the first. And actually the third one will flow logically out of the second. Uh, So point one, God makes us his children. Because we are his children, he provides for us. Right? That's what parents do. Parents provide for their children. And so God provides what we need. And, and that includes physical needs. Right? We, talk about how, you know, we talk about the doctrine of providence and uh, food and shelter and sunshine. All of that comes from the hand of God. There's that physical provision. But then God also provides for our spiritual needs. Our Heavenly Father provides for our spiritual needs, specifically setting us free from our sin. He's gonna, that's, that's the far bigger need that we have. He sets us free from our sin. He sets us free. He rescues us from our sin. That's what a lot of these verses are talking about. Uh, my wife and I have uh, three children. Uh, most of you know that. They're all young adults now, though. You don't always see them around. But um, the three young adult children, uh, when they were little, really little, like early toddler age, I got their permission to share this. Uh, when they were really, to- when they were like toddler age, one of our children got his head stuck in the banister at our house. So this was in Connecticut, uh, not the house here, but in Connecticut we lived in a parsonage and it had, at the top of the stairs was these wooden banisters, um, I don't know if that's exact, I think that's the right word, and one of our children had kind of gotten his head stuck in between it like this and he couldn't get it out again. Now I'm not going to tell you which child it was, in fact, I don't remember which child it was. (laughs) Isn't that terrible? Like I say, <laughs> far from perfect parents. I do not remember which of my three children, which is great, because you know, none of them's embarrassed because it wasn't any of them. Um, I don't remember which child it was, but I vividly remember it happening. And I did uh, fact check this with Laura. We, we both remember that it happened. And, and that's the reason, why do you remember it? Well, I remember because it was scary. It was scary. I'm sure Laura was off somewhere because she wouldn't have never let this happen. But... Um, <laughs> I, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm in another room and you start to hear crying, right? And you go, oh, what's going on now? And you're like, oh my goodness, <laughs> what did you do, right? You, there's the child with her head, you know, his or her head stuck in the, in the banister. And, and it, was, it, was, it was kind of scary. Now let's think about this for a second. Do you think I left him there? <laughs> right? <laughs> would, I, would I leave him there? You know, kind of, well, hey, you know what? That was a silly thing to do. You got to learn your lesson. I'm going to leave you there. I'll call, you know, I'll, I'll bring you some lunch, you know. But... No, right? Of course. That's why, of course not. What did I do? I, I got in there and I rescued my child, right? And I think, if I remember, I needed to kind of lift him up a little bit and tilt your head and some butter might have been involved. I don't remember, but <laughs> I rescued him, right? I got in there to set him free. Here's the point. If a far from perfect human parent is going to do everything he can to set his child free, how much more? How much more is our heavenly father? Behold what manner of love that he has made us children of God. How much more is our heavenly father going to do everything in his power to set us free from our bondage, to set us free from from our sin? And this this is what verses 4 through 10 are focused on. Now, this is a tricky passage, I think. Um, 
I, I've told you, John, I personally, some people love John, I personally struggle with John because of how he writes. And he's always kind of, he says this, and then he goes back, he says it again. So Paul is very easy to outline. John is hard to outline sometimes. So what I want to do is I want to take verses 4 through 10 as a chunk, and I can't take you through them one at a time because he keeps, he, he's like circling around. He keeps saying the same thing in different ways, beautiful ways. This is not a complaint about John. John's writing is wonderful. But, um, but what I want to do is I want to take verses 4 through 10 as a chunk, and I want to show you three aspects of what I mean when I say Jesus sets us free. So there's more we could talk about. It's a very rich doctrine. But in these verses, there are three things uh, Jesus uh, does for us that set us free from sin. And I actually want to use the word dead. Uh, Jesus kills our sin dead. You could advance just so the green letters show, so my graphics work. Thank you. Uh, he kills our sin dead. He, he really does. And, and I am using that as an acronym here. Uh, there's three things. I'm going to cheat and use the A is going to be the letter and, or the, the word and. But three things to help us remember what Jesus does to set us free from sin. Uh, the first is that he defeats it. Jesus defeats sin. And that's what you see in the second half of verse 8. Now, if you were here uh, back during Christmas, if you're here in the Advent season, you may remember we actually looked at this passage. We looked at a, a much smaller part of 1 John chapter 3. And I did a little series during Advent on the reasons Jesus was born, or some of the New Testament reasons, and this was one of them right here. Uh, John says, the reason the Son of God was born, the reason the Son of God appeared, was to destroy the works of the devil. Jesus came and he defeated Satan. It was one of the reasons he was born. He defeated uh, the devil, he defeated him in his life, and then he defeated him on the cross. And when he did that, verse 8, he defeated the devil. When he did that, he also defeated sin. And there, you know, here's where I mean where John kind of scatters things around. Uh, it's back in verse 5. You know that he appeared, and again, he's talking about the first coming there, verse 5. Uh, he, he appeared, he was born in Bethlehem in order to take away sins. So Jesus was born to take away sins. He defeated the devil, and in defeating the devil, he defeated sin. That was the purpose. That's why he came, and it worked. It worked. That's the last part of verse 5. And in him, there is no sin. So Jesus came to take away sin and to defeat the devil. Did it work? Oh yeah, it worked. Because in him, there is no sin. And so we talk about that usually in two ways. One is his nature, the other is his acts, his deeds. And so Jesus was uh, perfect in his nature. Sometimes we talk about original sin. Jesus didn't have any. He, so he was perfect in his nature, and then he was perfect in his life. He never committed a sin, not even once. Not even once. Which means you get to the end of it, and Jesus defeated sin. None of the rest of us can say that. The rest of us have all been owned by sin, one time or another. We've all, every human being from Adam and Eve right down to the bunch of us sitting here in the room, every human being to ever live has, has succumbed to sin. We've been defeated at various times by sin, but not Jesus. Jesus, John says, defeated sin. And because he defeated sin, so here's where, here's where we get wrapped in, because he defeated sin for himself, now he can defeat sin for us. Now he's in position to do that. It's not just for himself, it's for us. And John's been talking about this all throughout the letter. Chapter 1, verse 9, a verse we spent a good bit of time with. Uh, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He can do that because of this that we're looking at right now. It's because he defeated sin. And so he defeated sin for himself by living a perfect life, and then he took his own victory, and he used his own victory to free the captives, to set us free from our guilt. And so Jesus defeats sin. That's part of how he sets us free. 
Uh, he also exposes sin. Jesus exposes sin. Uh, and really what we're talking about now is he, he unveils sin for what it really is. Right? Again, it's not a fiction. It's a real thing. It's dark. It's not just fun. It's, it's dark. And he, he exposes that in what he did for us. Uh, John talks about this one in verse 4. He says, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. For sin, here's the exposure part, sin is lawlessness. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness because sin is lawlessness. Now let me talk for just a couple of minutes here about the verbs because this is a, um, this is a key concept we have to have to understand what John's saying correctly here. Um, the verbs in this section here are, well, I'll tell you up front that they're what is called a present tense. And a present tense usually has what, uh, a continuous sense of action to it, okay? So different translations will, and, and it's not your usual, just like we don't usually talk in the present. We usually talk in the past tense, typically. And, and Greek would work the same way. And so translators have to be careful here, and, and they'll do different things with the verbs here. So the English Standard Version, which we're working from this morning, uh, what does it say? It says, makes a practice of sinning. It talks about making a practice of sinning, or it talks about people who keep on sinning. But not all the translations do it that way. You might be looking at an NIV this morning, and if you are, it says everyone who sins. It doesn't say everyone who keeps on sinning or who, who makes a practice of sinning. It just simply says everyone who sins. Uh, the King James Version has whoever commits sin. Right? Those are kind of the, the two big ones in terms of other options. I'm going to go with the ESV on this one. That ESV is, is, gonna, is, is better in this one. It's better because it brings out that sense of the continuousness that John is talking about. And he keeps doing it. I don't think this is, we're not imposing an interpretation on the text here because he uses, I didn't count them, but a whole series of present tense verbs. And what he's talking about then is this idea of, of choosing to willfully engage in sin. That's what he's describing. And so when John talks about sinning in verses 4 through 10, he's not talking, he's not talking about uh, the sins that a Christian commits in weakness and then turns away from. Right? So he's not talking about the Romans chapter 7 struggle with sin that Paul talks about. You know, now that kind of sinning, uh, you, you repent, right? We, 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 we sin, but oh, we're, we're convicted, we repent, and we get back on the road with Jesus. That's, that's the Christian life. That's, that's what we're supposed to do. John's not talking about that. He's talking about those who continue in sin. They practice sin. They keep on sinning. They don't repent. They just embrace it and run with it. That's what he's describing here. It's, it's people who intentionally embrace sin. And so we're talking about rebels. They're defiant. They're rebellious. How do I know? Because that's who he groups them with in verse 8. Those people, those who keep on sinning, they belong to the devil, John says. He's not going to say that about you. You're a child of God. If you're, if you're born again, you're a child of God. Those people belong to the devil, he says, because whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. But the devil has been sinning from the beginning. And so when people embrace a lifestyle of sin, what does he say? He says there's no question about where their allegiance lies. Their, their allegiance lies with the devil. And I think that's why this idea of practicing sin is, is, is helpful. It's helpful because it helps us understand what he's saying here when he's talking about that refusal to repent, that intentional, willful, 
embrace and, and, and not even embrace, but, but going on to promote and endorse sin. That's what he's calling out here. He's not calling out your or my ongoing struggle with, you know, with uh, covetousness or greed or lust or angry or an anger or whatever the issue might be. He's talking about those who are committed committed to sinning. That's why I love this translation, practice. Um, if you've ever been involved in sports or music, you know that you don't practice accidentally. Right? Did you ever practice the saxophone accidentally? Right? Or whatever, you know, or practice free throws accidentally? No, you've got to go out and be very intentional about practicing. That's what practicing is. And that's what he's describing here. Jesus exposes all that. He's exposing the nature of sin. You can't embrace sin and embrace God because those who embrace sin are embracing lawlessness because sin is lawlessness. It's just rebelliousness against God. And so this sets us free because it outs it. It exposes it, right? We are not going to continue in that because it doesn't fit us. Actually, that's the way we, we come to um, going forward here. Which brings us to the third one, which is disarms. Thank you. Uh, the third part of how he sets us free is that he disarms it. So he defeats sin, he exposes sin, and he disarms sin. He kills sin dead. The disarming part is verses 6 to 7. Uh, take a look at those verses. And by disarm, I mean in the sense of robbing it of its power. He says, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning, there's that present tense verb, has either seen him or known him. Uh, little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous. What are you practicing at? What are you working at? Are you working at sin or are you working at righteousness? Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. That's what he says there. So, uh, actually got to look at verse 28 here. Back in verse 28 uh, of the previous chapter, which is actually technically the beginning of our passage this morning, in verse 28, he tells us to abide. And he had just told us to abide at the end of the previous verse. Now he says it again. He says, abide in him. And now, little children, abide in him. And you might remember from last week, if you were here, that that word means to, to stay. He's to kind of like, you know, settle down and stay, remain. And so we talked about drawing near to Jesus. That's what this abide in Jesus, draw near to Jesus, hold fast to Jesus, uh, draw, draw near to him. I think that's a, a good way to put it. John comes back to that now. So we looked at it in verse 28. It was there in verse 27. He comes back to abiding in verse 6. And this is where we're going to see how God, Christ specifically, disarms sin for us. It comes from our abiding in him and him abiding in us, or he abiding in us, okay? So first, he says, uh, verse 6, he says, as we do that, as we abide in Jesus, we will not keep sinning. No one who abides in him, we've been told multiple times up to this point to abide in him. Now he says, hey, look, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. This, here's our, this is where our strength's going to come from. It's going to come from, <clears throat> from, from abiding in him. Right? We won't practice sin because we're choosing to abide in Jesus. Right? So, so uh, we will not embrace sin as a way of life when we are choosing to abide in Jesus Christ. That's what he's saying there in that verse. And think about it. How could we? How could we do that? How could we embrace the darkness of sin while drawing closer to Jesus at the same time? They're incompatible, like matter and antimatter or something like that, oil and water. The two don't belong together. Jesus is, is pure, he's holy, he's good, he's righteous. And so what's John telling us here? He's saying, look, the, the, the closer you get to Jesus, the farther you get from sin. 
So, so abide in him. Choose to abide in him. That's the power we have to deal with our sin problem. That's how he disarms it. And that connects to joy. The farther, right? The closer we are to him, the farther we are from sin. And that leads to joy in our lives. How? How does that lead to joy? Well, we're free. <laughs> we're free. We talked about this back when we looked at some of that stuff in chapter one. We're, we're free from guilt. We're free from shame. We're free from, from that whole burden. Uh, we don't have to hide and clear the web browser anymore. We don't have to be embarrassed more around someone of the opposite gender. Uh, we don't have to remember which lie we told to which person and live with that whole burden. It's all removed, right? When sin is disarmed and we're not walking in sin anymore, uh, the burdens, the grief, the shame is all removed. And what's left is the joy, the joy of walking with Jesus Christ. So there's that sense in which we abide in him, and abiding in him gives us power and strength against our own temptations and sins. We talked about that a few weeks ago from a, a different angle, but it's the same, same teaching. John also uh, emphasizes another angle on abiding in this text, uh, because it goes both ways. You remember Jesus said that in John 15, you, uh, you abide in me and I will abide in you. John wraps that into here. So we abide in the Lord, verses 6 and 7, but then look at what he says in verse 9. He says, God's going to abide in us. So we abide in him, he abides in us. Verse 9. He says in verse 9, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. There he is again. No one born of, of God continues in sin. We can struggle sometimes and stumble, but we don't continue. We don't practice it. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning, because he has been born of God. So, a few concepts there. He's pulling things together. We are born of God, right? We're his children. We talked about that back in verse 1. And so, and so we're his children. Uh, here's another thing. So here's another reason. So being his children means we won't practice sin, because it doesn't fit us. Here's another reason now. We don't make a practice of sinning because the Holy Spirit lives within us. That, that's what he's saying there. And I think that's the right way to take God's seed. You get a couple of different alternate um, interpretations, but the Holy Spirit is the one, when the Holy Spirit comes and lives within us, uh, he, he's the one who causes us to be born again. So if we're using all this uh, language about being born, the Holy Spirit is the one who causes us to be regenerated. And so when he says God's seed abides in you, he's talking about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit of God lives within us, and he's the one who keeps us from continuing in sin. You see, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. Why? For or because God's seed, the Holy Spirit, abides in him. And so he's with us. God's seed keeps us from continuing in sin. And, and you say, how does that work? Well, what it comes down to is he doesn't let us. He does not let us. You know, we, we, we try to go back to the mud. We try to get back into the mud sometimes in our flesh. We feel that pull. Right? And I know, right now, we're, as we're listening to this, some of us are thinking, yeah, but I still, that, that thing has had a grip on me, or I still struggle with that, my tongue, it still gets the best of me sometimes. Uh, and, and yeah, yeah, we do. The, 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 the pull of the flesh, you know, the, the lust of the eyes, the flesh of the, remember that from earlier? Um, the desires of the flesh. It, it continues to pull on us, that's for sure. But, and, and a lot of times we have the power to say no as we're drawing closer to Jesus, but sometimes we, we, we fall, we stumble, and the Holy Spirit doesn't leave us there. He won't leave us there. He says, get out. Get out of the mud. Get out of the mud. You're clean now. You're a child of God. You don't belong in the mud. The mud's for the pigs. That, that's not for you. 
And so the Holy Spirit who lives within us doesn't let us stay in our sin when we sin. He convicts us and he leads us to repentance, which is two of the key works of the Holy Spirit. That's why we feel guilty. Right? That's why we feel guilty when, when, uh, when we sin and unbelievers don't. Have you ever known somebody who kind of, you know, not to judge people, obviously, but you've known somebody who just did something really awful and there's like no guilt. Like, yeah, I cheated on my wife. I didn't like her anymore. She was mean to me. And, or whatever kinds of things people say. Have you ever known people there's just zero sense of remorse or, or guilt for what they've done? This is the reason. It's not because you were, uh, you know, your, your parents made you feel guilty and they raised you the, you know, the wrong way. And so you feel guilty because, you know, you have an old hyperactive superego or something like that. That's not why we feel guilty. We feel guilty because the Holy Spirit of God lives within us. And he says, no. No, that's not for you. You're not supposed to read that or watch that. That, that choice, those thoughts, those words, that relationship you're, you're dabbling in, uh, it does not fit. It does not fit uh, the children of God. It does not fit those who are, uh, who are in Jesus Christ. And that's part of the disarming. How, is, how, does, how does God disarm the power of sin in our lives? He puts his own Holy Spirit within us who, when we do stumble, says, uh-uh, no, come back. Come back, child. Come back. Repent and come back. And so, yes, we still struggle with sin, but we struggle from a position of strength. We struggle from a position of strength. The Holy Spirit lives within us, and he doesn't leave us there. He loves us too much to leave us trapped in our sin. And so Jesus frees us. That's all. If I bundle all those together, uh, Jesus frees us from our sin. He defeats it. He exposes it for what it really is, and he disarms it in our lives through his own presence in our lives. Number three, the third expression of God's love that we see in this passage uh, is that he also prepares us. He prepares us uh, for eternity in his presence. And so there's a nifty little thing that goes on in this text because John talks about the past. So in the past, uh, the father made us his children. John talks a lot about the present. In the present, uh, God is working in us to free us from our sin, both in terms of justification removing the shame and guilt, and then also sanctification by empowering us to overcome sin. So he's helped us in the past by making us his, his children. He's helped us in the present uh, by freeing us, and now he loves us in the future. He loves us in the future by preparing us for the eternity that is to come. And this is what John talks about at the, at the beginning of the passage, uh, verse 28. I referred to it a minute ago. Let me read the whole verse now. He talks about it in two different verses. The first is 28. He says, and now little children abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. So he said a minute ago that abiding in Jesus helps us turn from sin here, right? It disarms sin in our lives now. Another result of abiding that he talks about in verse 28 is that it also gets us ready for judgment day. So abiding in Jesus now, it, it equips us to resists sin in our lives, but it also prepares us for that day when we will stand before the Lord. And he is talking now about, because it's a little, you got to follow along. He keeps using this word appearing, and then he'll use his coming, his appearing, his coming. Um, and you got to kind of follow him to make sure you're talking about the right one, because sometimes he's talking about the first one when Jesus came as a baby, and then other times he's talking about the second one when Jesus comes again in glory. And that's what's going on here. All right, so here in this one, uh, he's talking about the, the future return of Jesus Christ. At some point in the future, Jesus will return to earth. And when he does, he's going to do a lot of things when he does, but one of the things he's going to do is he's going to judge every single human being. Romans 14.10, uh, for we will all stand 
We will all stand before the judgment seat of God, for it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then, uh, verse 12, each of us will give an account of himself to God. Romans 14, that's not the book of Revelation, that's Romans. So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. That has the potential to be a terrifying day. It really does. Every single human who's ever lived will stand before a perfectly moral God and answer for all the immoral things they did during their lifetimes. If, if we believe that, if we take that seriously, it should strike terror in, in every heart. Unless, unless you belong to Jesus Christ. If you belong to Jesus, that day will be a joyful day. It says so again and again and again in the Bible. Uh, here, John says it this way. He says, when we stand before him, uh, we will have confidence. Not fear. Confidence. Abide in him so that, here's the result that's going to happen, so that when he appears, we may have confidence. And then he elaborates, we will not shrink back. Others will be shrinking back in terror, but we will not shrink back from him in shame or, or fear when he comes. Here's what else will happen because of that. Because we've been made pure, because we've been made holy in Jesus, because he's dealt with our sin, one more good thing that's going to happen here in this text, we will see him. We will see him, John says. That's verses 2 and 3. So all this flows out of abiding him, and it's so wonderful. This is all manifestations of his love. Verse 2, beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, second coming, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. So he says two things there in verse, uh, verse 2. We shall see him, and we shall be like him. Start with like him. We'll be like him because he purified us. In what sense are we going to be like Jesus in the last day? We're going to be like Jesus because Jesus made us like him. Not in the sense that we become gods. We're not, we're not gods. There's only one God, and it's him. Uh, and so, so it, he's not, when he says we will be like him, it's not saying we'll be elevated to some kind of godlike status. What he's saying is purity. In fact, he says it. We will be pure, just as he is pure. Like that's where we're headed for. That's what, what, what's in store for us. So we will, be, we will be like him in that sense. We will be purified completely, sinless. Look forward to that day. Amen. Uh, therefore, we will see him. Right? So because all of our impurity and all of our sin has been finally abolished once and for all, we're no longer feeling the pull to the mud. It's been, it's been destroyed once and for all in, in the eternal state. Then we will see him. Because we're purified, we can look upon the one who is pure. We will see Jesus, John says. And that right there, that's the best part of heaven. Can I just remind you of that this morning? That's the best part of heaven. That's what we're looking for, forward to. And, and it's fine to look forward to catching up with people. I really do. I don't have any problem with that. I'll talk that way sometimes at, at memorial services and say some, so on. You know, people will say, I just can't wait to get to heaven so I can see grandma again. Um, that's okay. But if that's the only way we think about heaven... Or if that's like the thing we're looking forward to most is seeing grandma when we get to heaven, we're selling ourselves short. We really are. We're, we're missing out on the best part. You know what it's like? It would be like, um, let's say you've got a family trip planned to the Grand Canyon. And uh, you're going to the Grand Canyon this summer. And, and you heard, somebody told you they have a really awesome snack bar at the Grand Canyon. It's just really good. They sell this wonderful ice cream and all this wonderful stuff. And so you're sitting there like, I can't wait to get to the Grand Canyon so that we can go to the snack bar. 
The snack bar is nice, but you don't go to the Grand Canyon for the snack bar. You go to see the Grand Canyon. Right? You go to see the big hole in the ground. And, and that's how it is with heaven. Uh, there's all kinds of joys waiting for us there, but the best part by far, it's not even close. Right? That's why John only talks about seeing Jesus. The best part by far is that we will see him as he is. And that's another kind of joy. It's, <clears throat> it's the joy of anticipation. Right? If you've ever hung around any uh, you know, engaged couples as they look forward to, to getting married, you know, and, and they're not living together and they're not sleeping together, and so they, they have that anticipation of what's, what's in store for them. It's a, it's, it's a kind of joy. It's hard. It's a hard kind of joy, but it's a joy, that joy of anticipation. That's, I think, what we're pointing to here. Something really good. Something really good is waiting for us in the future. Uh, we're not there yet, <laughs> uh, but we're getting closer every day. Assuming it all works uh, the way NASA hopes, uh, one of these days they're gonna, you'll start seeing stories in the news, right? You'll start seeing pictures of, of galaxies, and I don't know what they're going to find out there. Who knows what the edge of the universe might look like if such a thing even exists. Uh, but I suspect they'll be awesome, especially if you like that kind of thing, if you like astronomy and galactic you know, musings and all the rest of that. We're going to see some pretty awesome pictures. But can I just tell you, if you're looking for awesome, you don't have to wait for the pictures. Behold what manner of love the Father has given to us. He really does love us. And then nothing, nothing else compares. Nothing else compares to the awe-inspiring love of God. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, we just want to thank you this morning. Uh, we want to marvel at this love. Um, my words don't do it justice. And so I would just ask you to uh, imprint on our hearts, help us to walk away from here, with a greater appreciation of, of who you are and, and, and how much you love us, God. Thank you for making us your children. Thank you for loving us so much that you broke the bondage of sin in our lives and you don't leave us when we rebel against you. You keep pulling us back and, and you love us so much. And thank you for what lies in store. Thank you for preparing that place in eternity for us already and, and not only preparing that place for us, but preparing us for that place. Thank you for that work you're doing in our lives. To, uh, to be making us more and more like Jesus so that one day we will, uh, we will see him just as he is. Thank you, Lord. And we pray you'll keep doing this in us for your glory. Amen.